Well, if you have a Bible with you today, turn to John chapter 17. We're going to finish this series of, uh, of going through the Gospel of John at some point, but today we finish John chapter 17. Uh, I'm going to read uh, today verses 12 through 26. I thought about reading the whole thing, but then I'm afraid I'm going to get hung up on verses 1 through 11 somewhere if I reread them in this pulpit. So I will only reread verse 12. We covered it a little bit. We'll pick back up by reading that and continuing through. But before you pick on me for taking three weeks to get through this chapter, I was listening this past week to another preacher preach through this, uh, this series. And I think he had done it like in six weeks. And then he had uh, threatened his church that he had found out that this was the passage, John chapter 17, is the most preached chapter out of the Bible by the Puritans out of any other chapter in the Bible. So they loved it. The Puritans loved it. And they have been known to just preach a sermon on one verse at a time. Just to tell you, like, you need to know that there are people who felt called by God to deliver His words, that they literally took this prayer line by line and gave you 26 sermons. So I've done it in three, okay? So you just, need to, you just need to know we're not covering everything that's in this. There is just no human way to unpack it. And I, I bet if you talk to those guys that preached 26 sermons through John 17, and you said, do you feel like you covered it exhaustively? I think they would laugh you in the face. So here's what we need. And this is what I've prayed for. Holy Spirit, deliver what we need from this, all right? Like this is a well you are drawing up from. This is not uh, just the Lord's prayer. It is the greatest prayer because it's truly our Lord praying, all right? So we're going to just throw all that out there to just say, this is good stuff. This is the 20 ounce steak that you don't order at the restaurant because you've got five kids. You know what I'm talking about? So some of you are like, oh, I'll order it. Okay, maybe Mark Horn does, all right? But nobody else is in the... This is, this, is, this is it. This is good. So let's read it with that mind on cue. <clears throat> Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, and that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That one stabbed me this past week. He loved Christ before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even the world does not know You. I know You, and these know that You have sent Me. I made known to them Your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which You have loved Me may be in them, and I in them. You go, how can Jesus love so well? Because He had been loved. And how can you and I Go love others well because you need to come to the deep realization that the Father has loved you so as well. These are such wonderful things to draw from. As I've said, it is dense as we look into this gospel. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. He's thinking back over the last three years of service and ministry, public ministry. Uh, he had been with us as mankind for 30 years. He incarnated well into this. He became in the flesh with the people that he's going to redeem. He became like, like us in those ways. He was hungry. He was tired. He was... Uh, all those things, and, and, and he was tempted in the wilderness, yes, later on, but he had been tempted long before that with, with the things that men deal with, yet without sin. And then he began this public ministry, and these three years have been everything on cue, everything God wants him to say he does, everything that God is leading him to go to, he goes to, he is literally on point, empowered and moved by this to bring the fact that the kingdom was at hand. And during that time, he actually protects and guides them. Don't you know that they're hearing Jesus pray and they're remembering when he says, like, I have protected them and guided them. Don't you remember the, the storms on the sea and they were out there and the, these men who are fishermen, who are fishermen, get scared because the boats are rocking, things are getting crazy, and Jesus is asleep. <laughs> Uh, must have been something of an interesting moment. And they're like, hey, would you wake up? We're about to die. And Jesus goes, oh, that's enough. Storms, knock it off. Uh, you know, that's my way of saying it. And he just, that's enough. And then boom, the, the weather's gone. Don't you know they felt his protection in those moments? Those moments where they were going to be killed, yet Jesus just kind of tossed out that prophetic, remember we talked about this, where Jesus is in this moment and they're going to persecute him and they're going to, Jesus discerns they're going to try to kill him before his time had come almost and they're picking up stones and he says, what do y'all think about this psalm? And then literally he just walks away. And there they get in a big argument amongst themselves. He's protected them, he's guided them. But I want you to know this, that Jesus did not keep his own disciples in and through his own name but in total reliance upon God the Father. You go, okay, yeah, what's such a big deal about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it is far more foolish for us to think we can keep ourselves or others in our own name or by our own effort or authority or will. And this is really hard for someone like me. Because I can get a thousand percent in your mess. 
so that I can escape my own mess. As a pastor, the thing that number one pressure I feel is seeing things that are going on in other people. And my wife tells me this often. I need that prophetic voice from her. Although I can't believe I'm giving her something to have ammo against me again yet. But she'll, she'll tell me, she's like, you're a 100% kind of guy. And that's what I love about you. But we need you 100% too. Man, I mean, like, I, I know Parker has got a house that he, you know, he's not here, but he usually sits over there, and uh, th- that they're trying to renovate. I think about that. I, I see Mike, when he was persevering, trying to take care of his brother. I, I see, see Jeff taking care of his mother-in-law and trying to build these things. And, and I literally think about, even if I'm not with these guys, I'm thinking about it because I'm like, man, I just wish I could get over there and help these things, and I wish I could try to keep so-and-so. And then, I, I, then, I start, then you start bringing up like struggles that people have. And as a pastor, you just sit there and you go, Man, like, I know this person's dealing with this, and this one's dealing with this, and this one's dealing with this, and this one's dealing with this, and I, I just, oh, Lord, would you just help me know how to, where to go and encourage these people? And, and here's what I'm starting to realize. Lee, you can't do it. You can't keep these people in your own will and effort. But it's hard to tell someone like that to someone like me. Because I'll try. And this stuck out to me because as I looked at this text, he was like, I have kept them in your name and I I needed to hear that. And some of you probably need to hear it too. Maybe the next time we feel so burdened by somebody we're trying to hold up, we would actually start putting that energy in just literal intercessory prayer. And here's why. Because I believe that's what Jesus is doing too. As I look at the Scriptures, this is what Jesus is doing too. Maybe someone needed to hear that. I know I needed to hear that this week. And then he says, but the son of perdition, as the King James would say. uh, Mine says, the son of destruction. This This is interesting to me because, well, why didn't Jesus keep him? And it looks very insincere of Jesus that he would just allow Judas to just be Judas and and, and you know, and did, does this mean that he's predestined some to destruction and some to redemption? There's a whole mess that you could get enraptured here. And here's what I think is what we need to see of this: that the son of perdition or the son of destruction that that points more to the character rather than to the destiny. In fact, I would say this: that the expression means that uh, he was characterized by lostness, not that he was predestined to be lost. When Jesus calls him a son of destruction. He's just literally saying, man, his character the whole time through was to be against me. But here's what I want you to hear. Jesus still wanted him near him. Ooh, that's so good. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You need to know this. He knew he was never with him from the beginning and that he wouldn't be with him. In fact, he, he knows Prophetically, we looked at this last week. He has spoken into Judas. In fact, when he tells him at that last supper or that upper room, he says, do what you do and you go do it quickly. He knows what he's going to go do. And he still wanted him near him. I'm just telling you, that doesn't sound real Baptist at all. We only like people that are like us. and That like us and that are with us. Jesus says, no. I want him near me. 
In fact, we can see several different things that, that, was, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. You might write in your margin in your Bible. It's okay. The Bible's a workbook. You will not go to hell for writing in your Bible. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, begin to pick back up, and they're, they're speaking to one another. And here's what they start to realize. In the sermon, one of the first things that are going to be given out there, that literally this is a part of the redemption story. And so God is working even despite Judas's hard heart. And He wants him near Him. I find that encouraging. So Jesus, in verses 13-16 through 16 here, elaborates on this first request that He's laid out in His prayer, which is, keep them in my joy and away from the evil one. Aren't you, dude, is that not what we need today? To be kept in His joy and kept from the evil one. And he says these things, he says, but now I'm coming to you. He prayed with the full recognition that he was going to soon accomplish his earthly work. There's not a doubt in his mind. I think that's awesome because a lot of times when you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, which is another prayer moment that Jesus is going to have in this night before his betrayal, that's different than this prayer. He's sitting there with the, with the anxiety, uh, the stress, the agony. But he knew earlier that this is what's going to happen. There was not a doubt in his mind. And he says that my joy, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He didn't just pray this as to like keep good employees on down the road. Like he longed to leave behind good people who will follow him. No, he cared. He deeply cared for and he prayed for joy Fulfilled in their life. I want you to hear that. You're like, what is God the Father like? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I say what the Father wants me to say. So if we really want to draw a line here for oversimplification, what is God like? And what does He really care about? And does He really care about us? Or is He impersonal? And He's only for His, His ways and His things. And we're just little objects for Him to move around on a chess piece, a chess piece to be moved around on a chessboard in a game of life. Listen, that's not it at all. He called us into relationship. And we're going to see that as we unpack this. Uh, Carson, the commentator, writes this, their joy will be greater for remembering that Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, Prayed for his followers. He's not thinking about himself. He is literally thinking about them. Isaiah 53.3 talks about how he would become a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That is about to happen. Yet in this moment, nevertheless, there was a joy and a satisfaction in the life experience of Jesus that surpassed all the joy that you could ever have. And you go, well, how do you know that? Because he's literally praying that his joy would be extended into you. You catch this? Jesus was a joyful person to be with. You want to be like Christ? Be a joyful person to be with. But let's be careful that we don't manufacture it. We're not looking for like a, like a fake, religious-y, undertone, of, you know, you going and, hey, Jesus, how you doing? Blessed and highly favored. All right, if that's who you are, be that all the time then. 
But that sounds like a lot of church speak to me. Jesus probably wasn't invited to friends uh, to dinner with friends of sinners by being religious fakey person. He was joyful. But I thought about this. This is some things that um, someone else pointed out. I think it's worth passing on to us. His joy was rooted in unbroken fellowship with God the Father. His joy is rooted just in this unbroken fellowship. I don't know about you, but I, I, that's what I desire in my life. How could I be more joyful by never severing the fellowship that I have with God the Father in my life? Do you believe that? Number, number two, his joy was the fruit of true faith and confidence in his Father. Like, you know what I want? You know what the result of my life that I want to see? A faith that really works. I want to be a righteous man that when he prays, it unveileth much. I want to be able to pray in such a way that when I pray for something, it is, Lord, this is in accordance with your will, and that is why I brought it before you. And I bring it before you, and I ask you to hear my prayer boldly, and God, I ask you to move in this way. You say, well, you ought to be careful. That sounds like name it, claim it. It sounds a lot like my Bible. His joy came from seeing the great things that God had done. I mean, just the bag of tricks that you could see in the Gospels is enough for me. But then if you could think about how God has done His things through the ages, Jesus knows this. He's, he's the eternal God, the Son made flesh. He has literally witnessed everything. His joy was never diminished by His own sin. Think about that. He's never had sin stain. I just, I, I, it, for me, it, it just, it beckons me to want me to say, like, there was a preacher that said this one time, and see if I can call him up. I committed it to memory at the time. Uh, he said there are three prayers maybe we ought to pray, and I found them very beneficial. Uh, help sin to grieve me like it grieves you. Um, help, sin, help, help sin to grieve me like it grieves you. Help me to, to despise sin the way you despise sin. And help me to judge my sin that I may not be judged by you. This, this is powerful. I don't know if you're like me. I can't even wear a shirt to lunch and not come home and have to spray it. Does that, I mean, is anybody in that world? I think it's just guys with bellies. I think you skinny people... Probably Jared doesn't even deal with this. It just literally, that, that, catch, that ketchup just goes to the plate. But my belly is literally all of the things. I mean, and it, it could even be because sometimes it's the table. I mean, I am that guy. You know, it's no, no judgment for me. I mean, I just want you to know this, that often I just, I constantly find myself having to spray the shirt. Like, and she's like, you can't go eat anywhere without staining your shirt. She's learned to accept me in that way. And I, you know, it's now I've learned to not even bother her with it. I just do it myself. I just walk in there, the laundry room, I just spray it and I lay it on the washer. And that's her knowing, listen, I confess my sins ever before me. I love you. This is what I did. Please wash this later in the next load. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, what I need to do and what I need to work on is keeping a close account of the sin in my own life. Sin distracts you. Sin is a snare. His joy was never diminished by deception. Man, this hurts my heart when I see believers say things to other believers. Or let me just say this. Maybe believers saying things to believers when they clearly have been deceived. And truth is not being spoken. His joy was never diminished by allowing even the smallest foothold to the devil. I just want you to think about the last several we just said. If we could not be blinded and affected and stained by sin, if we were never diminished by deception, and if we never even allowed the smallest foothold of, of the devil or his working in our life, what kind of joy would we have? You know what you'd have? You'd have the joy of Christ. And you know what Christ is praying for? That you would have that kind of joy. If Jesus was so concerned for joy among His disciples that He prayed for it, you can know that He's also concerned that you have joy. God's purpose is to multiply joy in your life, not to subtract it. I'm not talking about happiness, by the way. If you, if you interpret this as happiness, you need to hear me. Happiness depends on happenings. Joy depends on the Lord and the Lord working in your life. And if you don't have it, this becomes a really dark place to live. The world, the flesh, the devil tells us something different, but God wants joy fulfilled in your life. I need you to hear that today. And he says, I've given them your word. Not merely this, the teaching of Christ, the oral teaching, but the whole revelation of the Father, as we talked about in previous weeks, has been manifested through acts and personality of Jesus. Spurgeon says on this, he says this, uh, See how the Lord Jesus Himself takes all His teaching from the Father? You never hear from Him any boast about being the originator of profound thoughts. No, He just repeated to His disciples the words He had received from the Father. I have given unto them the words which Thou hast given Me. If Jesus acted thus, how much more must the messengers of God receive the word from the Lord's mouth and speak it as they receive it? Can I just say where you start? Knowing the Bible. This is why we're doing Wednesday nights. This is why, if you can't make it, check in on the podcast. We're wanting people to know what the book says. To know how to read it. To apply it. To interpret it. To understand it. That these things are important. That you need this. I mean, the, the, David said, I hid your word in my heart. That I would not sin against you. By the way, he's speaking of like the Torah and stuff. He's not even talking about the wonderful works and the ministry of, of, of the Messiah in the New Testament. He's thinking about those things, but that, that's unbelievable. And Jesus says, I pray, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Have you thought about that? Well, if he wants my joy, then he ought to just give me 
a, a place with no problems. He needs to put me in a, in a position where it's just really good. And then we can have joy. No, you'll have happiness. Joy depends on relationship. And Jesus says, I'm, I, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. We've got to be careful today about this kind of theology of Christian isolation. Like this hide your kids, hide your wife, this, this fishbowl Christianity that we just sit there and we stop becoming fishers of men and we only do these certain things and we hide away. And we, Listen, we are to be in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I'm not hiding from anything. The righteous are as bold as a lion. That doesn't mean you go out there and you be antagonistic either. Live as, live as peaceful as you can among all men is what Scripture talks about. A quiet, peaceful, godly life is what Paul instructs another group. I mean, we see this pattern that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Uh, he didn't become a friend of sinners because he's annoying to them. Just like Wednesday night, I was poking around. It's my job to take a very deep, boring exercise and make it a little bit lightened. And so Wednesday night, uh, Dr. Jeff was talking uh, and Jeff Thompson goes, hey, uh, so like, you know, he talks about a text about God's chosen people. And he's like, who, who are the people in mind when God says his chosen people? And I was like, American Christian Republicans. That's who he had in mind. And the whole room even felt the distaste of that. But how many people think like that? This is to me that he would not take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He definitely wanted us to be in the world, but he didn't want us to be evil. He didn't want us to be marked by an evil one. In fact, Jesus didn't pray that we should be taken out of the battle, but that we would be strengthened and protected in it. This is why he tells us, like Paul writes Ephesians chapter 6, and he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes or the wiles of the devil, that you would take up that shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the feet with the readiness of the gospel, shod with the readiness of the gospel. I mean, he's literally telling them the belt of truth. He's telling them to call to arms. I want to be a part of a church that continues to push back darkness. I want to be a church that, I'm going to tell you, this, this neighborhood needs this church. The more I live here, incarnating myself missionally and all the things we teach you to talk about when we talk about missions, the more I realize how people presume that this neighborhood doesn't have any issues. And I'm here to tell you that is crazy. Because this place is definitely broken. And maybe more entangled. The more money you have, the more you can get entangled in more things. Brokenness abounds. And we are called to have His joy and to be sent with it. And he, Jesus says He prays that they be kept from the evil one. I like another, another sermon Spurgeon elaborates on this. He says, uh, he spoke, Spurgeon spoke to those who are in sin and yet do not feel it to be evil. And here's what he tells them. He tells them this illustration, and I love it. There are some of you who do not feel sin to be an evil. And shall I tell you why? Did you ever try to pull a bucket up a well? You know that when it is full of water, you can 
pull it easily so long as the bucket remains in the water. But when it gets above the water, you know how heavy it is. It is just so with you. While you are in sin, you do not feel it to be a burden. It does not seem to be evil. But if the Lord once once draws you out of sin, you will find it to be an intolerable and heinous evil. May the Lord this night wind some of you up. Though you are very deep down, may He draw you up out of sin and give you acceptance in the Beloved. You don't want to hear that dude preach. He's going right at the jugulars. He's not even playing around. He's like, throat hit. But I'm serious. I can imagine this illustration. Drawing a bucket up. As long as it's in the water, you can fly that bucket up. As soon as it gets out of the water, drag hits you because you feel the weight of it. Go live a Godward life and see how hard you find the battle with sin to finally be. You go, it's not that big of a deal. I can stop anytime I want. Then just stop. Tell me how that goes, by the way. <laughs> hey, your friend who was a youth pastor, he was like, he's like, dude, I've got to like grow in how to give counsel to people. And like, because people would tell me something, and I'd go, man, that sucks. That's all he had. Or somebody would be like, ah, oh, man, I just need to try to stop this. Yeah, you probably should. You should stop. That's not how this works. This is why Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? But thanks be to God who gives me the victory through my baptism, through my church membership. Now those all sound wrong, don't they? Who gives me the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. So though they're not of this world, he says, just as I am not of this world. I want you to think about that because it's, I think it's, uh, possible for someone to be crazy. I mean, there's a lot of people that I know that are not of this world. Right? You ever meet somebody and you go, "Woo! all right. Here we are. But Jesus doesn't mean this in a way that sounds like that he's crazy. Um, or that he, people that are, that are out of this world could maybe be violent. I would put Hitler on this list. I don't think Hitler was of this world. I think you would agree with that. But he was violent. He was crazy. He was evil. Jesus is none of those things. In fact, I would say Jesus is not of this world in the fact of his nature. I want you to catch that. But I want you to catch this. Though that is true about him, it should be true about all who are in him. Did you catch that? He is redeemed. Er, and we are the redeemed. We have the flesh and we have the spirit. Jesus is not of this world in his office. Right, right? He is is Savior and Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the one that has come and, and, and he is set apart for the mission of God. But can I tell you, if you're in him, you are set apart for the mission of God. Just as you've sent me into the world, he just prayed it, I'm sending them. And then, Jesus is not of this world in the fact of his own character. He's different. In every way, he is different. The rules of men and and, and the religious and self-imposed legalism that you can find, he just stands against and at odds against all of those things. And he's literally for the righteousness that comes 
from God, not the righteousness that comes from man. And therefore, he can like parse out and give so much good stuff to people because it becomes from the essence of who he is. And let me tell you what we're meant to be. Christ-like in our character. The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, the Bible continues to point us to those things, works within us. And he says, sanctify them by your truth. This actually implies holiness, being set apart from the corruption of the world and for God's use. I want you to see the from and for. God's called you from this for this. Do you hear that today? He's called you from this for this. You say, man, are you sure? Man, I thought of this. I thought of 1 Peter. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, you could. Near the back of your Bible. And in 1 Peter, there's these wonderful words in chapter 2. I thought about reading a whole bunch of these, but I thought, how do I make this four-hour sermon shorter? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Sounds like Peter might have been in that moment where he heard Jesus pray. Sounds like it might have made a spiritual dent into his soul. But I only pray that it would in ours as well. Think about this. As he, as he says, as, I, as you sent me into the world, I sent them into the world. Jesus didn't come as a philosopher like Plato or Aristotle, though he knew more higher philosophy than them all. He didn't come as an inventor or a discoverer, though he invented new things and discovered new lands. And Jesus did not come as a conqueror, though he was mightier than Alexander the Great and Caesar. What did Jesus come to do? He came to teach. He came to live among us. He came to suffer for truth and righteousness. He came to rescue men. As you have sent me, so I'm sending them. Guys, this is it. We are here to tell, proclaim, to rescue, to teach people what it means to obey all that He has commanded us to do, to live among people just like He lived among people. And there's the whole training on the podcast on missional essentials where we talk deeply about what that means. Um, Jesus came to suffer for truth and righteousness. He gets in there and He fights fights. Um, there's a book out in the hallway, I think I have a couple out there still, um, called Flesh. And, and, and in the book, uh, Hugh Halter, who's a friend of mine, writes this book and he says, sometimes Jesus' people pick a good fight. And he talks about when Jesus cleanses the temple, it was a good fight. Now mostly I need you to know that that's not usually with people that are not even caring about the Lord and that are way obviously of the world. Usually those fights are with people who claim to be Jesus people but don't live the Jesus way. 
And Jesus comes and does all these things. And he says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. And he goes on to these things. And he, and he says, I do not pray for these alone, but those who will believe in me through their word. Did you catch what happened in that text in verse 20? He broadened the scope of his prayer and he looked through the disciples, through the next groups of people, through the ages, and I believe he looked right through and at you. And then he looked at who those who will believe through and what we're doing even to come. And he looked through all of those people back to the idea of the, of the consummation of redemption when we're all with Him. It just blows the circuits for me. Jesus went to the cross knowing His work would endure. Just another confession as a pastor. Don't know why I'm giving you all this like air today, but I am. The one thing I pray the most for us is that the work that God has blessed me to let me do over the last nine years will continue on even if I was to leave, pass away, or be repositioned, that this ministry would endure. I don't even understand the confidence that Jesus has when he says, I went to the cross knowing it would make it. It just makes me realize, Lee, how are we ministering and how are you going to minister and how are you going to pray and what are you going to do and how can you as an under-shepherd with Jesus understand the confidence that he had and how do you lead the way he led? That's challenging to me. Jesus left his earthly work full of confidence in the work of God through his disciples. He literally, he, he's not walking out or checking out with thinking that, that anything is going to happen beyond what he knows is going to happen. And I, I don't know about you, but I need this text. I need to read it. Lord, I don't know. I mean, I see people who are not ending well. We talked about this in Breakfast Club with the men. And to sanctify them with your truth, Lord, prayer, I need this. And Jesus not only does that, he prays for unity among all believers. Notice his idea is, uh, is that there be one. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 talk about that the, before the throne of God, every nation, race, language, class, social level is present. And Jesus prayed that they might rise above all their different backgrounds and understanding and their unity, that they would become one. The God of the Bible knows that you won't be one in the fact of uniformity, but that, that, you, would, but that you would be one in unity. We're not all meant to look like each other, talk like each other, have the same personality like each other. That's like a cult. You understand that? We're here to be diverse. We are here to express it in all fashions. But we're also still to be unified. The idea that, that the cross crosses culture. This is really apparent for me. Not like in just the Western thought. I mean, racism, definitely a real thing. All the things we could think of here. But even like getting off the plane, 
to a whole other people group in international waters, but meeting someone who has put their faith and trust in Christ. And on those short-term international trips, you meet these people, and you, but you can't describe it, but there is a bond that immediately exists when you walk up to them. What is that? I think it's the answered prayer of Jesus. There's just the moment you get off and the, and the hello, brother. And they smile. And, and it's just like, wow, I feel like we're family and we've known each other for a long time. This is what the Lord desires for us. We must believe that this prayer was answered and that the church is one and our failure is, uh, and our failure is in failing to recognize and walk in that divine fact. You go, well, I don't know if that's really true for me. Then I think you need to check your heart. A lot of times there's truth that we don't walk in. And I think if we're not seeing this, that Jesus is praying for unity among his believers, and if someone isn't seeing it, then I think they have to look in themselves. We have a phrase in my house. If everyone is the problem, you're the problem. If everyone is the problem, you're the problem. This means I have to check my heart, even my own self. I'm at a table and I realize I'm like really frustrated with everybody at the table. I'm speaking to my family. And then I set this go, whoa, whoa, Lee, hold on, Lee. Uh, they all seem to be at peace here, brother. You're the only one that isn't. Check your heart. And Jesus prays that his church would be marked by glory. And I'm going to speed up as much as I can to try to finish this today because I'm, I'm not where I wish I was in my notes, but these sidebars are getting me. I believe there are many ways that Jesus gives his glory to his people. Uh, the glory of his presence. You realize that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation and the old things are gone, the new things have come, that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit of God who is in you, whom you've received, you were bought with your price. That this is a glorious thing. You're not just like going to go change your status on social media to like, you know, Christian or Christ follower. You're, you, this is real for you. His Word that, that we have. I mean, there are there's so much right here. His glory has been given to us in this word. There were guys that were reading and memorizing as good, good men of God, Jewish boys raised up right, that would memorize the first five books of the Bible and would think of it as the most glorious thing. I don't know about you, but your Bible reading plan, you ever try to read through the Bible in a year? And you, you go read through those first five books. It's hard. You want to get to the good stuff. They considered the good stuff. His Spirit. We talked about a minute ago. His power. His leadership. His preservation. The idea that He has sealed us with His Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Um, Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 when he said, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Every time we go to Brookfield Assisted Living, every time we walk in the club, I mean, 
every time. We, we're going to sing two songs that are maybe different, and then we're going to sing two songs that are never different. All right? doesn't matter what we do. That's how we do this. And we sing, trust and obey. I believe it's uh, hymn 447, I believe. 447, maybe 477. I always have to catch it real quick. I think it's 447. And then we sing, um, there's the... Uh, There is something about that name, hymn number 177, that one I do know. And and, and every time I watch these ladies, and really the reason we do it is because there's a woman in there who is, you know, just, I don't know, just under 100, 98 or something. She was a a charter member of this church, of Fanny Hills Baptist Church, and of this church, Forefront Church. She's known me since I was a teenager which, you know, is not nearly that long, but, you know, it's um, because in her life, I'm just like a little pup. But uh, she has a mind that is sharp. I mean, I call her, I call Lynn Queen Mother, so I told her this past week I have to call her because Lynn was there. So I was like, whoa, we got two Queen Mothers because I've been lying. I've always called her Queen Mother. So I was like, Wanda, I'm changing yours to the great Queen Mother, right? Because whatever she says, we do. But here's why I'm doing it. Because... Every time we sing it, I watch her countenance, and she smiles, and she recalls her sister, who she loved dearly to the end, just recently. She recalls her faith in Christ, and she's learned the harmony to this one song. And I don't know how long I'll get to see Miss Wanda and how often I will get to be with Miss Wanda. But every time I am with the great Queen Mother, we will sing 177. Because there's something about that name. And I watch the peace on her, and then I watch the peace on me as I close my eyes singing with them, and I hear her little harmony kick in that she's trained herself to do because she doesn't do it on any other song. And I've learned to just sit there, and I'm like, Lord, there really is something about your name that a 98-year-old sister in Christ who still has her mind can't get over you. And I've got 38-year-old people that know just like me, and they've gotten over you. God help us. It just melts me and I'm like, we will sing it until you no longer need to sing it, sweetheart, because you will be in His presence. We will sing it until then. And so play it again, piano person, please. Every week. Sing 177. Every week I try to act like we're not going to do it. Yep. But we can't leave without 177. Let's turn there. And she'll go, I hoped you were going to say that. And I'm just telling you, there is something about knowing the Lord that should change you. He talked about the glory when he talked about crucifixion. You catch this earlier in the Gospels? Chapter 7, chapter 12, all these places you see that literally, he is working towards the cross. He is telling them, my, it's not time for my glorification. And what is his glorification? You and I would think of it as a vacation. His glorification is the cross. Are you kidding me? 
He prays to be with, uh, that they prays for unity founded in love. He wants them to see that it's it's because uh, it's, it's difficult because we even understand the words of Jesus that there's so many reasons that people won't be believers. But he's praying that no, no, not my group. My group's going to love each other in such a way that when they look at how they behave towards one another, they will want in. Yet, man, how many Christians, to quote just one commentator that says it better than me, but what a sad thing was it that a heathen should soon after have cause to say, no beasts are so mischievous to men as Christians are to one another. God help us. Jesus prays to be with His people and for them to see His glory. And in this He says, I desire... Jesus longed for heaven's completion of all things. I find joy here because you know what I've always wondered? God, when will you just come back? This, this is crazy. This is madness that we're dealing with. This is unreal for me. I just wish you would come home or, or bring us home. I, I want out. I desire to be with you, Lord. And even Jesus says, I desire this too. But it's not yet time then what does that mean for you and me? Then it means we go to work. I'm not talking about your job. I'm talking about the real work. The Father's business. He says, where I am, that they, they may be where I am. Jesus is on earth. He says, where I am. Jesus was not yet in heaven. Yet he speaks as if he was already there. Which, by the way, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, you and I are seated in the heavenlies. Warren Wiersbe, commentator, preacher, he writes about that one time. And the thing that always stuck with me was his illustration about this when I was studying that one time. He said, think of it as the president's chair in the Oval Office. Who can sit in the chair? Only the president of the United States. That means the, his authority sits with that chair. No one else sits in the chair but the President of the United States. But is he always sitting in that chair? No. But where does his authority sit? In that chair. The Bible says we are seated in the heavenlies. I'm not there, but I have some authority from there from being in Christ, that I can pray and move and act in the kingdom. Are you kidding me? We're going to shatter weak Christianity today. As he closes his prayer, he says this triumphant conclusion. He says, like, I've declared to them and I will declare it. He knew that he had done his work and would finish his course. And I don't know about you, But I find that encouraging because he's not on the cross yet. And he says, I've done this. And I am, I want them to be where I am. I mean, obviously, it could also, it probably does imply, right, that where I am, meaning where I am with you is where I want them to be, Lord. Even as we are one, let them be one. Be one with us. I want to close by. Hebrews 
And I'm going to let Winston come because I feel like if it's not like a Grammys, this could carry on forever. So maybe I need music to walk off. Not to manipulate you, but to remind myself short. Listen to these words. I'm going to read these. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read these to you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is Christ. God help us. The high priest would, would uh, back in the Old Testament in the, in the holies of holies, but where they only went once a year, and that only the great high, the great priest would uh, the high priest of that year would go in there, and he would only go in there once, and he would put these uh, bells on this rope, so as that he walked in there, and if he had uh, sin that wasn't covered by the way that God had told him to cleanse his life, then he would die. And they would pull him out with the rope. And you know what he would do? He wouldn't linger. He would go in there. You can read about it. He would do what he was supposed to do. And then he gets out. What the scripture just said is that Jesus goes in as our great high priest into the holiest of holies with the sacrifice for all mankind. And he does what God has told him to do. And then he sits down at the right hand of God. He walks right to the Father and then sits down. And he's now in Revelation seated at the right hand of the Father. He is that kind of priest. He doesn't have to walk out because he's strapped up with some sin that may come in his life again. He was the sinless Savior who knew no sin to become sin for you and me that we would become the righteousness of God. And he walks in and he makes that offering of blood and redemption and then he's brought back to life. And then literally, God just says, just sit down right here, my son in whom I am well pleased. He is that high priest that the writer of Hebrews writes about. You read about it. And then you skip over to chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated, He is seated at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood." Lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily entangles you. 
and, and, and consider Jesus, who for joy that was set before Him, endured the cross because He knows there's no other way that we could have fellowship with Him. And so He sacrificially laid down His life. Christian, when will you sacrificially lay down your priorities and your goals and your agendas and put it at an altar and say, God, I want to live in Your kingdom, Your way. You do what You want me to do, Lord. I am here gifted, sent, and for the joy that's set before me, I will endure what You have put before me because I will fix my eyes on You because You have already done this before me and I have not ever yet resisted to the point of shedding my own blood. Forgive me for my weakness and my frailness and all of the, in, the weaknesses that abode within me, God, embolden me to live different, to care about your work. Because Jesus has prayed for you and he prays for you. If you're here today and you say, I want to do that, but I, I don't know how I could do that. Then I would start to ask you, has there been a time in your life where you actually called upon the Lord to be your Lord? Because you, you could try to be a good person, you can try to be a moral person, you can try to do all those things, but we are followers of Christ, and that's what we're talking about here. And the only way to follow Christ is in relationship, not in rules. And so the relationship comes first. And if you don't have a relationship, whether you're listening to this later or you're watching this online or you're here in person, I'm telling you today, you need a relationship with the Lord. And it only comes through knowing Christ and calling upon Christ to give you eternal life. And so the best you know how, it looks like this. Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Christ. And the best I know how, I surrender. I lay it all down at your feet, everything I am, God. And I ask you to give me what you have for me. Give me life. Give me your joy. Give me your peace. Give me love. Change my heart, God. Change my being. Lord, thank you for saving me. And I pray for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. That's what it looks like to lay all of it down. And some of us, most of us today, have done this. So I would look at you and I'd say, so what? What are we going to do? Let's live with purpose like Jesus did. Father, have your way in our hearts today, Lord. I pray that you have used this message in some way or another to prick our hearts. Because I know you've pricked mine, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would not just feel any sort of contrition, that we would literally, God, begin to confess and to tell you to, to, to draw closer. Lord, that we would be drawn up and see sin for the evil that it is. From that analogy long ago from Spurgeon, Lord, that we would, you would draw that us out and walk us into the things that you have for us, Lord. Your word is a, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, that you would take these things and lead us to respond in the ways we need to, to become what you've called us and pray for us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.